Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Dan Ennis, and I'm joined by Barry Casson and Steph Voye. How are you both? Hey, Danny. Perfect. Couldn't, I'm looking forward to Taylor presenting today. I'm really excited. Oh, me too. Whoa, perfect. That's uh, that's pretty good. Can't do better than perfect. All right. And we're also joined by Taylor Drury. Taylor, can you introduce yourself? Certainly. Uh, so my name is Taylor. I'm a current fifth-year general internal medicine fellow doing a, a bit of uh, extra training in thrombosis for the past year and hoping to finish up in a few months and start working somewhere uh, close by. And I'm very excited to, to join the podcast and thanks so much for having me on. Taylor's joining us at St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report Incorporated. So Sweet. looking forward to it. And in, tremendously excited. <laughs> I, I'm really hoping that the, um, that the thrombosis fellowship data is foreshadowing here. Like I feel like the diagnosis already is pretty likely to be either PE or DBT. So I'm, I'm feeling great already. <laughs> Steph, you can't make the diagnosis before you hear the story. <laughs> no, I'm just saying he's already, he's already narrowed the range of possibilities. There's two. Okay. There's two. No promises though. <laughs> All right. So Taylor, we'll turn it over to you and uh, take it away. Okay. So this is a 35-year-old male who presents to the emergency department of a tertiary care hospital with a headache. He has no past medical history and takes no regular medications. He works in construction and lives at home with his wife and two young children. He does not smoke. He occasionally drinks alcohol and very infrequently uses marijuana about once a month. He's had this headache for the past week. He describes it as bifrontal, radiating to the back of his head, a band-like pressure and character. He's had some associated nausea and vomiting. The pain occasionally affects, it, affects his neck, but there's no neck stiffness. There's been no thunderclap component. There's no postural component. The headache seems to be better when he is active and distracted. He has no past history of headaches. He has been taking regular Advil and Tylenol every eight hours, which does provide some symptom relief. And when the medications wear off, the headache intensity builds back up over a few minutes before his next dose of medications. He's not had any associated neurologic symptoms such as visual changes, speech disturbances, motor or sensory symptoms. He did have one episode of lightheadedness a few days ago. Over the past week, he's had two previous presentations to this same emergency department. Uh, the first one was the day the headache began when he had an episode of fever. He'd had noticed some brown semen intermittently for the preceding few weeks and presented to the hospital because he was worried about a urinary tract infection. At that time, blood work, urinalysis, and basic STI testing was done and was normal and he was discharged home. His second presentation was two days later when he presented for the headache. He was given a migraine cocktail which improved his symptoms and he was discharged home. In the interval time up to this current presentation, now his third, the headache has remained persistent, not clearly worsening, but not improving. He has not had any further episodes of fever. In the emergency department, given another migraine cocktail consisting of Toradol and Maxaran, and he's currently feeling much better when you see him. On examination, his vitals are normal and he is afebrile. Cardiorespiratory and abdominal exams are unremarkable. He has no clinical features of meningismus. A detailed neurologic exam is normal, aside from some subjective dizziness and some very slight difficulty with tandem gait that improves as he keeps going. He's had not no blood work drawn, but his labs from his recent emergency department visit just a few days ago demonstrated a white cell count of 6.4 
a hemoglobin of 128, platelets of 378, normal electrolytes, and normal renal function. So I know we're early on, but I'd like to stop at this point just to get everyone's preliminary thoughts on where we're at and what their next steps would be. Uh, PE? Case <laughs> 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 closed. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, okay. thank you so much for listening thank to the you. Morning Report thank podcast. Thank you very much for the uh, end of yeah. the episode. Um, that's a really odd combo of symptoms, I think. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. Ex- I was not expecting the brown semen. Okay, that yeah, was yeah. a surprise to me. I actually thought I might have misheard that at first. So did I. So did I. Okay, so so you, yeah, you know, to me, headache in a thirty-five-year-old that's never had headache before is is pretty ominous, especially mm-hmm. in the recurrence of uh, coming back and forth to the emergency room. I had you mentioned at one point he had a fever, but was that like? A significant fever? What was what was temperature? Certainly. So he was he was at home. So he didn't measure it himself. Um, but he. So all we really have is that he had a subjective fever at home on the day his headache started, and then over the past week, as his headache has persisted, he has not had any further subjective fevers. And on his now three presentations to the emergency department, we have no documented fever. Yeah, I guess what I would say is that sudden onset of headache in in um, a young person has a pretty limited differential. Whether he has a fever or not, I'm not certain. But a persistent headache raises, the, I'm certain that probably migraine is the most common presentation. But in an otherwise healthy individual, I think we'd have to think about structural problems, both venous and arterial in, in his brain. I doubt that this is the presentation of an infection or meningitis. And without any localizing findings, I don't think that we're looking at tumors. So those would be, so whether it's sinus vein, thrombosis, initiated or beginning or another problem, I don't think we have enough information to say at this point. For me, the, you know, you said tumor, unlike, I mean, I, t- I agree, except that, like, let's just say the brown semen is like, you know, blood, um, I'd be thinking about like a like some kind of testicular tumor or something. Like I, ah. I okay for me because he, he's had negative STI screening, and so I think you know worst case scenario, I'd want to like be sure that this guy's had a really good workup for the brown semen. It's one of these things that like yeah we don't see it very often, and I think it's it's almost it's either uncomfortable to think about or uncomfortable to talk about either because it's like a sexual thing or because we don't know anything about it. But to me, that seems like an interesting clue. And I'd want to make sure that I have a like my head really wrapped around that problem because it could end up being a very relevant and, and uh, important clue. Hmm. Yeah, I think I might like, uh, so a couple of things that I wanted to like tick through on history was like that, those migraine features, and I think Taylor, you mentioned a bunch of them, but like pulsatile photophobia, phonophobia, but also cluster headaches like rhinorrhea. This doesn't really sound like cluster headaches. And then, you know, we have to tie in this gait abnormality, which at least early on without localizing a lesion points me to something cerebellar and and trying to connect those things. I th- You know, the brown semen is maybe the most specific feature that I haven't seen I don't know if I've ever seen it actually. So I think I might ask a urologist like, okay, does brown or bloody semen, does that point specifically to and or exclude any specific components of the sexual organs? Like, is it specific to testes, 
Does it exclude like epididymis? Like what is included and excluded there? So that I could start to, maybe that would help me narrow in on which organs are involved for this guy and then connect it that way. So I'm going to move on, jump ahead for the sake of time, but I'm hearing, you know, certainly that this is a abnormal presentation in a 35-year-old and definitely needs further investigations. So in the emergency department, he undergoes a CT head without contrast. And this demonstrates a small intraventricular soft tissue nodule with no associated abnormalities. And the radiology report states that this study is otherwise completely normal and that this finding is likely incidental. So does this change, does this finding change your thoughts or management plan for this case? No, it's not the scan that he well, needs. Yeah, but I, I, I only, humbleness is part of doing this, uh, this podcast and, and doing medicine and, I said at the outset that I was talking about different things, but this rules out a neoplasm, and then you come up with potentially in interventricular obstruction uh, from this lesion in his uh, ventricle. So I think I'll sit back and listen and learn. Oh, I was about to say that. <laughs> okay. I, I, I call it. I call sitting back and not answering questions. Again, were you to explain my, my thinking, like, um, you know, Barry was saying, like, he's worried maybe about a clot. And so on a plain non-contrast study, you're, you're going to miss that. So I've seen this bef- like several times before that someone ends up with a diagnosis of like a dural venous thrombosis and they've had multiple CTs, but the CT was never a CT venogram. And so you're just like, okay, well, let's get the one study that the patient actually needs. So to me, this is like a, non, a non-story. Like I don't have the imaging that I want. And so I'm no further ahead. Yeah. And can I, 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 can I, I just ask about the, the brown chain? I have to, it's, I, I don't think I've ever heard and maybe I don't work in the right area of medicine, but I'd never heard the description, first of all, of the appearance of semen, and then secondly, the description of brown semen. So I have no idea. I don't have any differential for this problem. Certainly. So if we, as we move forward, some more information will be filled in. That's (laughs) that's fair. (laughs) So following this non-contrast CT scan, He's seen by neurology, and the, and the neurologist agrees that this is an incidental finding. But for completeness, they arrange a CT scan, uh, a CT angiogram of his head done in the emergency department to look for any vascular causes of his headache. And the CT angiogram redemonstrates the same small, nonspecific intraventricular nodule, but finds no vascular abnormality. He's then discharged home with a plan for an outpatient MRI of his head. He undergoes his outpatient MRI a few days later, and it's markedly abnormal. There are innumerable peripheral enhancing lesions throughout his brain with leptomeningeal enhancement, most numerous in the cerebellum. There's minimal surrounding edema, and he's called back to the emergency department the day after for further evaluation. So you see him now, again, his fourth presentation to the emergency department, and his headache remains persistent and unchanged. He's just taken 1,000 milligrams of aspirin prior to coming in for symptomatic relief of his headache. He has ongoing intermittent nausea and vomiting associated with his headache. He has not had any further fevers. He does have some mild unsteadiness on his feet, but he's had no other new symptoms that have developed in the past 48 hours since you last saw him. Aside from the headache, he otherwise feels well. He has not had any further recurrence of brown semen or other any other specific symptomatology. And you re-examine him again, his vitals remain normal, and his exam is unchanged, especially his neurologic exam, aside from this ongoing mild difficulty with tandem gait. So you chat with him again, and you find out that he was originally born in Mexico, 
and moved to Canada with his family five years ago and is now a permanent resident. Over the past several years, he has traveled to the U.S., several South American countries for short periods of time, but has not traveled anywhere in the past two years. He has no personal or family history of TB, no known TB exposures. He's had no exposure to farms or pets. He has no abdominal or respiratory symptoms. He has no pain in his joints or rashes on his skin. He has no history of recurrent chills or night sweats. He had the one episode of fever that I outlined at the start on the day his headache began, but has not had any further episodes. His appetite and energy have been somewhat low for the past week due to his headache. Before that, he felt otherwise well, and he has not lost any weight. Uh, some basic labs are drawn in the emergency department and show a white cell count of 10 with a normal neutrophil, a normal lymphocyte count, and very mildly elevated monocytes at 1.3, and normal eosinophils. His hemoglobin is 136, his platelets are 401, his electrolytes and renal function are normal, his calcium is normal, his albumin is normal. His liver function tests, including bilirubin, GGT, ALP, AST, ALT, and LDH are all normal, and his CRP is 0.5. So I'd like to stop again at this point, now that we have a bit more information, get everyone's thoughts and plan moving forward. Mm-hmm. Is that what uh, everyone is expecting on that MRI? <laughs> Yikes. It was a shock. Yeah, well, that certainly explains his headache. What do you guys think, like the, what's like the, how, how would you guys order your differential for innumerable peripheral enhancing lesions with pachymeningeal involvement? What's like high on your list? I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering about, I mean, he, he's up until five minutes ago, I assumed this man was immunocompetent. And now I'm starting to wonder. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, that that thought has crossed my mind. So, so unusual infections, fungal infections, and so on. I'm wondering about. I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to do usually, especially in a young person, is see how many of the things that I'm hearing I can tie together. So I'm trying to think about things that affect the genitals and things that affect the brain at the same time. He he's a man. Stop it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still thinking about I'm still thinking about malignancies and and infections like like even syphilis. I, I'm not sure, you know, like I'm sure he was already tested for that. Um, I I know that you can, I know that there are like parasitic infections that that can affect your uh, GU tract and also the brain. Yeah, I'm a little. I'm not so sure. Sh- I, I I don't really know. I mean, this is one where where I would be talk. I would go straight to the neuroradiologist and say like. Is this pattern, what is this pattern sort of uh, signaling to you? But mm-hmm. yeah, we're, I mean, on my own, I don't have a, a I, I'm, I'm vamping here. I don't have a, a very good differential diagnosis for that finding. I, I guess what we haven't heard is um, just one is the, the detailed examination of his, his genitals and whether he has a testicular mass, I guess common things are not common, but neoplasms in young people, often uh, young men occur there. And the other thing is that we didn't hear his urinalysis, or if we did, or if we heard it, I didn't hear it. So can you give us those findings, Taylor? Certainly. So his genital exam is normal. There are no abnormalities. And his urinalysis is also bland. Okay. So we don't see any red cells in his urine? No. No pyuria. All right. So, I, so you know, I, I still think like infection, malignancy, autoimmune at the bottom of that list is still kind of like the, the two things on my list. And I, I, I think I'm hearing that those are two still like the two big categories that you folks are thinking of too. I think for this guy, like 
I certainly want, even with a normal exam, I still want an, an ultrasound of the testes. I think um, an LP would be helpful. I would do a systemic infectious workup, blood cultures, urine cultures, echo. And I might kind of organize those things before looking for other asymptomatic organ involvement, like by, by which I mean, you know, when would you want to look for, if you're looking for metastatic disease, CT scans of like chest and abdomen. Does that sound like, is that kind of like the ballpark of where you guys are thinking too? Of course, all guided by like this. I totally agree, Steph. Like you need to talk to neuroradiology and be like, what is your, yeah. like, what's the top differential here? Because they're like, oh, it looks exactly like neurocystocercosis. Then you're like, uh, okay, well yeah. then like you're going to, that's a very different slant on the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's right. I also think, you know, if you're going to LP this guy, I think that's, that's probably happening. And this is one where I would save a bunch of the fluid and put it in a freezer somewhere for testing later. Can I ask a really dumb question? Like this CRP of zero, basically, what, what do we think of that? Like, is that just, we just ignore that? Or, I mean, to me, CRP that low argues against an infectious cause I, I i don't know you know i don't know what the negative predictive value of that is for for all the infections that we're being that we're considering here but that's i was surprised by that i was expecting to see some inflammatory marker yeah yeah i i agree it's almost annoying because mm. like I, I i think like when we can kind of like dive into more aggressive investigations when people look really sick mm. but when they're like doing okay ish like not too sick their CRP is normal, then like, I, I think that that sways us to reorder this differential a little bit. And I don't, I don't know, I think I'm going to ignore it. Because I still think like, I, I think what we must do is rule out like a an, an easily treatable infection, yeah. even with a normal CRP, but right, like endocarditis, infectious endocarditis with a totally normal CRP, like that's quite weird. Mm -hmm shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, this is one thing I learned from Barry early on when I arrived in Vancouver was, you know, when you have these cases where you're not sure if this thing is inflammatory or malignant or infectious, start off by ruling out infection mm -hmm. and then, and then go from there because the infections are more likely to kill the patient right away. At the same time, the CRP of 0 0.5 to me, in my mind, I'm saying hmm, it, it increases the likelihood that this is going to turn out not to be an infection, that it's more in the malignancy mm -hmm. camp. But obviously I, I don't, yeah. I don't think the performance of that test here is that, that great, but that is what it's doing to my thinking anyway. If I could no, just no. jump in to, yep, to ask a, uh, Two specific questions. I've heard a few, uh, a few people have mentioned doing a lumbar puncture, mm. and in terms of the timing and the potential urgency in the setting of a patient who's taken a thousand milligrams of aspirin earlier in the day, what would be the thoughts around that? And then my second question would be: At this time, would we start any empiric treatment? No treatment for now. Agree. Yeah. So I guess uh, it's an attractive thought to give the historical features and that you mentioned he's from Mexico and uh, he's done some traveling. And so he has, you know, he has potentially been exposed to a variety of things. And Steph mentioned the possibility of immunocompromised, but with an HIV status that's unknown at this point. And he's in construction. What does he do in construction? Do, do, do we know? He builds things. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> He's uh, not in de demolition. No, no, not, not in demolition. Just in 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 regular industrial construction. All right. So I, I guess then I would refer back to the pachymeningeal enhancement and uh, and his cerebellar findings that, that 
diffuse cerebellar findings. And I agree with Steph and, uh, and Danny, who are both saying that this is an infection until we show it's not an infection because, um, and so the, the difficulty I have with doing an LP right now is that I'm not sure what we're sending this for uh, other than the sort of routine fungal and TB and, uh, and syphilis and I, so I'm in the cytology. So I don't, I don't know that I jump into doing an LP immediately. Obviously, that's what was done because you're asking the question about would we do it with this much aspirin on board? I have to admit that I've never used aspirin as a deterrent to do an LP, but I haven't been involved, I guess, in that many cases where you were taking that much aspirin. It's a lot of aspirin. <laughs> yeah. No, certainly. And so we had the similar questions that it seemed like a quite a significant amount of aspirin. And so just as a small aside on that topic, the American Regional Anesthesia or ASRA guidelines, which are more or less the gold standard guidelines for any neuroaxial procedures, state that NSAIDs, including aspirin at regular doses, don't provide any uh, significant risk for spinal hematoma. And so they can be done, whether it's an LP or an epidural or a spinal block for an operation without problems. And the question of doing an LP or any sort of neuroaxial anesthesia on such high dose of aspirin is actually unclear. The American group hypothesizes that high doses of aspirin can actually have a paradoxical thrombogenic impact. And so it would potentially create a lower bleeding risk than aspirin. And so, and so they recommend that no amount of aspirin at all would impact the risk of spinal hematoma. But in comparing it to other regional anesthesia guidelines from other countries, they actually recommend on the extreme end waiting up to seven days. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that I'm comfortable waiting seven days, but I also had no idea that taking too much aspirin and makes it opposite aspirin <laughs> like a, a, a movie so bad it's good uh, but, uh, that's pharmacologic nonsense is that real have you guys heard about no. that okay. well so they their their proposed hypothesis and, I, and i'll I, I can just go over it now but then i'll we'll jump forward is that regular low dose aspirin inhibits cox one which is has primarily impact uh, on platelets whereas high-dose aspirin also impacts the production of prostacyclin, which is a vasodilator and an inhibitor of platelet aggregation. And so in theory, you could have a this thrombogenic effect or a reduced risk of bleeding, but I don't think it's ever been, certainly never been formally studied in a, in a clinical setting. Boo. I just want this on record. I want this on record on the podcast that <laughs> the body is so annoyingly complicated, <laughs> like be easier. Uh -huh. Right. Can like, I ask a question, Taylor, though, with the theories of high dose versus bleeding versus thrombosis, has any of this ever happened? I mean, has everyone ever had a thrombotic complication from high dose aspirin? Is that yeah. with an LP? Not, I don't think so. I think it's it, 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 I'm not sure. But my my understanding is that this paradoxical effect would, in theory, lower the bleeding risk compared to someone on low dose aspirin where they have a mild bleeding risk, not something that would prevent you from doing the procedure, but that the risk on someone who's taking, you know, but uh, up to, you know, one to two grams of aspirin, the, that risk would be even further reduced. But again, it's not clear because some other guidelines say that the risk of bleeding could be in theory higher and they say wait seven days, which seemed like a long time. And I just wanted to highlight it because as you've mentioned, you know, he, this gentleman needs an LP and it was hard to determine the urgency of the procedure yeah. 
yeah. based on where we're at. You know, and you're not advocating loading him with aspirin if he's using low dose. <laughs> no, yeah. no, that would be an interesting. Uh, it would be unconventional. Yes. But you know, know, Taylor, we've um, uh, we've recently become aware that a lot of non physicians listen to this podcast, and I would just for all the all everyone out there, physicians and non physicians alike, please don't do this. Please don't take weird doses of things. You're going to confuse your doctors and we're not going to know what to do with you. you yeah. So please yeah, look how long we talked about this for. <laughs> yeah, like, no. I don't even know anything about this. What I would actually do is I would call Taylor and I'd be like, Hey Taylor, I have a big headache for you. Can you <laughs> and I'd ask you this annoying question and you'd be like, Oh, shouldn't have picked yeah, up exactly. the phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm okay. So, so, okay. So, so we'll, we'll, we don't we'll know. move on. Yeah. <laughs> So he gets admitted to hospital for an expedited workup. As you have all suggested, he doesn't get started any specific treatment aside from analgesia for his headache, which is not high doses of aspirin. While waiting for his LP, because we didn't do it immediately, he has the following investigations. So he has a CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis contrast, demonstrates only mild retroperitoneal adenopathy adjacent to the abdominal aorta, felt to be indeterminate in nature. There are no other suspicious findings. He has a testicular ultrasound that's negative for any masses. He has some autoimmune investigations. He has a normal ANA, normal ENA, normal complement C3 and C4, normal normal ANCA serologies, and normal antiphospholipid antibody syndrome testing. He also has some infectious workup. His HIV serology is negative. His syphilis EIA is non-reactive. His hepatitis B and hepatitis C serologies are negative, blood cultures are negative, and an echocardiogram from endocarditis is also normal. He undergoes an MRI of his cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine to, to assess the extent of this leptomeningeal enhancement that they could see extending down to the base of his head on his MRI brain. And his MRI of his spine demonstrates diffuse leptomeningeal enhancement throughout his cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. Jeez. Again, seen are multiple rim-enhancing lesions in the cerebellar hemispheres bilaterally. And the radiology report is less helpful in listing the differential diagnosis, including malignancy, metastases, lymphoproliferative disorders, infection, and inflammatory causes. Yeah. Mm. That's just <laughs> all the diagnoses. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they forgot thrombosis. Why are we even <laughs> exactly. talking about this case? Exactly. So he, has, uh, he undergoes his LP two days later, and the results are markedly abnormal. His CSF is colorless. His white blood cell count is 572 mm-hmm. with a normal range of less than 5. There's an elevated neutrophil count at 23% with the normal range between 0 and 2%. It's a, there's a normal lymphocyte count of 76% with the normal range between 60 and 100%. And his red blood cells are elevated at 25 with a normal range of less than 5. His total protein is 3,000. The normal range is 150 to 450. And the glucose is slightly low at 1.4, with the normal range between 2 and 4. The LP is sent for a number of other infectious serologies, but we don't have those results. So at this time, he's now been in hospital for three days. He's begun to have intermittent fevers, up to a max of 39 degrees Celsius. He's feeling generally unwell, but in no acute distress. His headache is persistent and has begun to worsen slightly. He had an episode of mild bilateral hand paresthesias yesterday that resolved. He's had no other new symptoms. So again, I now that we have a bit more information, I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on where we should go next. 
Well, I can say that just hearing the description and with his findings is that um, this, uh, the differential to me would be TB fungal infection neoplasm with his low sugars, high protein. Uh, the lymphocytosis, you say this is, you mentioned a lot of white cells, but most, and most of them are lymphocytes. To me, that's, that's odd and would support more the diagnosis of TB. And I'm still leaning towards infection, although those other things are obviously still present, but I still think about infection. Yeah, me too. What do you think, Steph? Same. I, I mean, the white count is very high. He's got fevers. He's, yeah, it's infection. I, I yeah, TB, but again, like TB, if he's, if he's immunocompetent, I'm not sure why he's presenting in such an inflammatory way. So again, I'm wondering how immunocompetent he is. If it's like a like a, even a parasite, maybe like like cystocercosis. I think that's you know possible, and I don't know if that affects the genitals. And again, I don't even know what's happening in this guy's genitals. I'm not sure that the money is there anymore. I still wonder if these could be Mets. I, I know that he's had a normal and thorough testicular exam, but he does have these retroperitoneal lymph nodes that I think are, you know, it's one thing to brush them off because they're not huge, but in the setting of a guy who did present with this brown semen, I, I do think that they're worth investigation. I, I'm actually not sure how much farther ahead I am. I'm impressed at the degree of inflammation in his in his uh, spinal cord. I'm, hmm. I'm I'm impressed by his like his general stability given how inflamed his like the extensive nature of the pachy meningitis. Mm-hmm. That's a little surprising because I think if it was a bacterial infection, no. Like, I really think he would be really uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't think the rim enhancing lesions make sense for a viral infection. So, I think that puts it more into mycobacterial, fungal, parasitic sort of camp. I was trying to like rack my brain about because, like, pachymeningitis is, is kind of like its own differential for rheumatology, but like, there has been reasonable workup done. If you add it, it, I'm curious about the retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, if there's any retroperitoneal like associated stranding or retroperitoneal fibrosis. I really think like Taylor, you probably would have told us that, but I'd mm. probably go down and just review that that CT um, as well with radiology to make sure. I, you know, I'd have to really think through how convinced I would be that rim enhancing lesions were IgG4, Erdem Chester other weird histiocytoses that I usually just kind of hand wave on the show because like not not really my area of like personal hyper expertise. So but those would be like things on my list like, okay, it's very unlikely to be those things, but I, I'd want to review those scans. But I I agree with you, Steph. Like I'm not sure that I am like way closer to an answer. I, we're just kind of at the stage of evaluating the extent of disease. You haven't talked about malignancy, Danny. You think that's that one's parked or you think we're still Oh no! To rule that out. I, I still think that that's high on the list. So, like, I still think, like, it, like I, I kind of don't care about the normal testicular exam. Mm-hmm. I, I can't recall if if his CT scan also included the testes, but an ultrasound of the testes would be, I think, helpful there. Yeah. Did we get an mm-hmm. HCG on it? We did. An HCG was normal. I, I forgot to mention that, and he did have a testicular ultrasound done that was negative. Right. So, and what? And so, what, did we look at his urine for TB? Be just. Based on the fact that he has brown semen, and uh, I know his urinalysis is normal, but I mean, so I suppose he could have prostatic TB. A urine sample for TB was not checked, and so at this time, with with him showing some clinical worsening, we don't have an, an answer at this time. Would anyone start any treatment? Worsening in that he has fevers. So he's starting to have fevers. 
and he feels more general malaise than he did previously. No. So it hasn't been a huge change. I just wanted to gauge the the preference towards continuing to investigate or treating something, recognizing that we don't know what's going on. Uh, you know, I, I think I've historically been the person here who, who advocates for empiric therapy the, the earliest, but I would say like, it's not meant to be reckless. I, I, I like empiric therapy either when someone's dying or when I think like our workup has been exhausted, you know, like when we don't have any other tests to offer. And here, right. I'm, not, I'm not actually sure, you know, he's got this adenopathy, I don't, uh, the retroperitoneal adenopathy. I don't know that we can access it. I don't know how long it's going to take for some of our remaining CSF studies to result. But otherwise, is there anything else that we, that we are waiting to test? If there's nothing else, then sure, we can give him something. I don't even know what that would be, uh, but I, I don't want to give him anything that might muck up our workup. That's where I'm so kind me, of blanking too, is it, like, cause I, I totally agree. Like I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with like a quick list of like, da, 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 these are the things like I would do next. Like the third tier investigations have become more complex and it feels like we need to be a bit more targeted here, or we need to ask for help from urology for assistoscopy or you know, ID um, for, for some additional thoughts on what else to send. But but I guess, like, if I was the general internist, which I, like, hope to God I never would be, I, I would really, like, struggle to come up with, like, what would be the cocktail? Like, what would I put him on? Does he need prednisone? Mm-hmm. Does he need TB therapy? Does he need anti-helminth therapy? Does he need, like, like I have, I really don't know a category. So I'd, I'd really struggle to begin uh, therapy. And I don't think, like, we've categorized him we don't even know like what group he's in yet so that's disturbing did you do an igra on him just by the way yeah so it, so as you have all suggested we no treatment was started because there was still too much uncertainty and we begin to get further results coming back so his tb igra is negative his csf acid fast bacilli stain is negative and the mycobacterial culture is pending and will be pending for a while his serum and CSF cryptococcus antigen is negative, and he has serum testing for a number of other infections, including Lyme disease, cat scratch disease, coccidioides, histoplasma, toxoplasma, all negative. So he's now been in hospital for a week. He's becoming slightly confused on exam. He has persistent headaches, but it still is otherwise not in any acute distress and he's not had any new focal neurologic deficits. So at this time, the infectious disease team that has been involved in this patient's care weigh in, and they feel that the most likely diagnosis is neurocystocercosis, with evidence of extensive disease involving his brain parenchyma, ventricular and subarachnoid spaces, and diffuse spinal involvement, which in their opinion requires urgent therapy with dexamethasone and antiparasitic therapy, which is albendazole and prazacantol. And their argument is that neurocystocercosis is most likely because he is originally from Mexico, where the parasite is endemic, and that alternative diagnoses such as TB and other infectious etiologies are less likely given his LP results. They note that starting antiparasitic therapy for neurocystocercosis can precipitate an inflammatory response secondary to the degrading parasitic cysts. And in a patient with such extensive disease, as in the case of this gentleman, this risk is exceptionally high and can include complications such as hydrocephalus and the development of spinal lesions that impair CSF flow with a high likelihood of morbidity and even mortality. And they acknowledge that at this time, we have not yet ruled out other non-infectious etiologies such as CNS uh, leptomeningeal lymphoma, 
and initiating steroid therapy with dexamethasone may impair a future diagnosis if this is the case. And just for the for the audience, I'd like to briefly review neurocystic sarcosis because it was certainly a condition that I was very unfamiliar with at the time. So sister sarcosis is an infection caused by the larval stage of the parasitic pork worm called tinea solium. And tinea solium is an endemic parasite in many regions of Central and South America, as well as a few areas of India, Africa, and Asia. And humans can develop two different types of infections with this parasite, infection with the tapeworm or infection with the larvae. Tapeworm infections occur primarily by ingestion of undercooked pork, containing the parasite in pork muscle. These infections result in tapeworm formation, which remains in the small intestine and does not cause disseminated infections, but results primarily in GI symptoms. However, the tapeworm existing in the, in the GI tract produces eggs, which are shed in the stool. Infection from the larvae occurs via ingestion of these eggs shed from a tapeworm carrier. And after ingestion, the eggs hatch and the larvae are distributed via the bloodstream to a variety of tissues, most commonly the brain, where they form tissue cystercy, which are cystic in nature uh, with membranous walls containing fluid. And this, this, is, this larvae infection is the form of disease called cystercercosis, and is thought to be transmitted human to human via an asymptomatic household tapeworm carrier, likely through poor hand hygiene through activities such as preparing food with hands soiled by fecal material. And humans carrying the tapeworm can actually infect themselves through this same mechanism. So the clinical syndrome of sister sarcosis include neurosister sarcosis and extra neurosister sarcosis. And neurosister sarcosis can be further divided depending on what the location of the cysts, either in the parenchyma of the brain or extra parenchymal, which is the intraventricular subarachnoid spinal or ocular regions, as in the case of this gentleman. The most common clinical presentation is that of seizures and headache. And when subarachnoid neurosister sarcosis arises, it can show up with obstructive hydrocephalus. The challenge with this condition is that the diagnosis is primarily established based on clinical manifestations, neuroimaging, and epidemiologic exposure. Serologic testing is recommended for confirmatory evaluation in patients suspected of having neurocystic sarcosis, but it often takes a long time to result, and patients with diagnostic neuroimaging findings warrant treatment before serologic results are available. But at the same time, as we've already discussed, there are a number of other conditions that cause these cystic rim-enhancing lesions on cranial radiographic studies. It can be very difficult to differentiate. Just as a general uh, background, prior to determining treatment plans, patients need to be staged with an MRI brain and spinal cord, which this patient's already had. The mainstay of management is antiparasitic therapy with albendazole and there is a very high likelihood of an inflammatory response, as I outlined previously. Prior to starting any patients on antiparasitic therapy, they need to be screened by an ophthalmologist for retinal involvement, as this inflammatory response post-parasitic therapy can result in vision loss. So now that we're armed with some additional knowledge, I wanted to know what people's thoughts were on where we're at. And to summarize, he's been in hospital now for just over a week. He's had symptoms for probably the last three weeks and is now starting to show subtle signs of clinical deterioration with worsening headaches and new slight confusion. I just had a, a thought because I, I have seen a, a couple cases of neurocystocercosis uh, when I was doing ID rotations. And what one of the physicians 
um, had done to help confirm the case was to look for cystocercosis elsewhere and actually did, I believe it was just a, a plain film x-ray, might have been a CT, I think it was an x-ray of the thighs because that was a location for, for deposition. So I'm, I'm wondering if um, if you guys have ever heard of that or that was uh, that ID doc doing a bit of a jazz solo <laughs> on that patient. So if this is like remote echoes from my residency. <laughs> I don't think I remember. <laughs> I don't remember anyone else doing that. Um, okay. Yeah. I can't claim any experience any more than maybe one or two cases over the number of years. So I have no illness script and no paradigm to follow for this. So I'd have to also look at the literature. I have to admit that hearing the untoward effects of this would want to make me certain that I was doing the right thing. So I'm not sure that I jump into the therapy and uh, wouldn't pursue further diagnostics with uh, uh, a brain biopsy or meningeal biopsy to know what we were dealing with. I'm still not certain. And, and uh, maybe uh, if it's not sister psychosis, maybe it's brother psychosis, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> Oh, no. We just lost half our audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah don't, just, don't worry. We can take that out in post. <laughs> oh, good. So I think that, uh, yeah, I have no experience with this. I like the idea of the opto exam. That was something I was um, I was thinking about as, as you started talking is like when we have these weird, like, and I think that's useful for autoimmune disease and infection is a lot of them when they affect brain, other tissue, they also may affect the eyes. And so that's like, I, I think that in this case, it's screening. But I'm, I, what I wonder is, so Opto comes and says, yeah, there is, <laughs> yeah, there's a neurocystocercosis in the eyes. Um, they have retinitis. How do you not treat, like, how do you not treat them? Because it seems like the disease is, is kind of the sort of thing, like the longer you wait, the worse uh, things get in terms of the immune reconstitution or like the however you want to describe it as like the, um, the the flare of the disease after you start the agent. So does the presence of eye disease stop us from treating him? Do we have to wait? Because Opto is going to take a day or, or so to, to come in and see most likely. So I'm just interested why you, why with very little in the way of background knowledge by all of us, why we would jump to this diagnosis just on the basis that he lived in Mexico. Well, also the brain lesions, <laughs> like, you know, like putting the case together with ID, they're saying like, this does look like neurocystocercosis. Is that not convincing enough? But also the longer you wait, the harder it gets to treat. So, and if you're wrong and it's not neurocystocercosis, but you treat as though it is, you're not going to flare the neurocystocercosis. Right. I guess. So I, you don't I have to worry about that, that yeah. part. I guess there's that point. Uh, I, I, I think that, yeah, I think I would still want to pursue be more aggressive with the diagnostic, invasive diagnostic testing. Do you think biopsy? Mm -hmm. Leptomeningeal. Mm -hmm. And uh, brain if there's an attached lesion. What do you think, Steph? You know, this This like is, it's it's representative of my entire career. Like as a general internist, I know a lot about a lot of things, but I don't know everything about one thing. And, and so I'm often in a situation of being the most responsible physician in a patient's care and and still being dependent on my subspecialist colleagues when I find myself out of my depth. And so this is a case where, honestly, I'm a little lost. Like, I I don't know. And the patient sounds like he's going down the tubes. And so while we're nowhere near certainty, I definitely have left myself 
in a number of like cases sort of dependent on one subspecialist who comes by and says, you know what, I've seen this before and this is what I think is going on and most of the puzzle pieces fit together and that's got to be good enough because the patient's going down the tubes. And so I, I, I'm tempted to get on the cystocercosis train, you know, I, but it's uncomfortable for sure. I, I, I get that. I, I feel the group's discomfort and I feel it myself. I think once you've like assembled the team that you think covers the appropriate bases for your diagnosis, and one of those team members pipes up and says, okay, I think I've actually identified the syndrome. Mm. And and everyone else says, I haven't identified the syndrome. Like this does not look like ankyovasculitis or whatever um, you, you come up with. I think at that point, like it, 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 you do your you know, every day when you see every patient, you're doing your risk benefit analysis of every therapy um, and every investigation. I think at that point, when someone's doing really badly, like I feel obliged unless I have some real red flag or like itch in the back of my head that I just can't get rid of that we're missing something. I think I could sleep at night if we started this guy on treatment for what we thought was the best answer at the time, even as we're starting to involve neurosurgery to talk about biopsy to try and confirm the disease. And we ended up being wrong. Like, I still think it would be the right thing to do with the information we had, even if it ends up being lymphoma. I agree with that. I mean, I think that if we were going to treat, and, and I think you're right, I mean, if he's deteriorating, I think that presumptive diagnosis and a treatment is still is very reasonable, but I don't think I'd, I think I'd still pursue a diagnostic, further diagnostic testing. Fair enough. And so along those lines, we did, he does get seen by neurosurgery and they do not feel that a biopsy is possible given the extent of the disease and the degree of leptomeningeal enhancement. They did not feel that it would be safe. Boo. So <laughs> certainly. So you know, isn't as it you like just... <laughs> like it's either too little or too much, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can't win with these guys. <laughs> it's too small or too big. And so we we were in a very similar situation. This is certainly a diagnosis that is very quite as quite rare and definitely beyond the scope of most internal medicine practices and we become very reliant in those situations of our on our subspecialist colleagues, but there certainly was this ongoing question of how confident are we in this in this diagnosis, and have we ruled out the other etiologies that you know would be more sinister in nature? And after a number of discussions and uh, highlighting all the all the issues that uh, everyone has brought up, uh, a plan to initiate antiparasitic therapy is started. He is seen by ophthalmology to assess for ocular involvement, and there are no cystercy on his retinal exam. I, I should have mentioned before, prior to starting therapy for neurocystercercosis, given that they will likely require a prolonged course of steroids, screening for strongyloides infection is also uh, done routinely, and his serology was negative. So he receives a dose of dexamethasone in the evening and started on antiparasitic therapy with albendazole and prazacantol the following day with dexamethasone continuing. Over the next few days, his clinical condition worsens. He becomes delirious. On day six of treatment, he develops acute aphasia and decreased level of consciousness. Repeat CT head shows acute hydrocephalus. Oh He's tra transferred to the ICU and undergoes external ventricular drain insertion to relieve his intracranial pressure. <laughs> He has continued on antiparasitic therapy in addition to the dexamethasone. While in the ICU, he also developed seizures and has started on Keppra. A repeat MRI brain is performed and shows improvement in his obstructive hydrocephalus after the shunt insertion and a decrease in the size of his multiple enhancing brain lesions, 
felt to be consistent with a favorable response to therapy. The marked leptomeningeal and dural enhancement has worsened, which was felt on the radiology report to be an inflammatory response to the treated infection. So where are we at now? Is his deterioration and the, this expected effect of therapy? And what are our next steps? Feels like that's kind of what ID was expecting. Mm. So I think it adds credence to the diagnosis. I don't think we're like at 100% yet, and I don't think ID would say they are either. But I do think that helps me be a bit more confident that we're still on the right track and there was no way around this aspect of like of, of his care. Like we had to start that medication. It was the right thing to do now, even in retrospect, even though he's gotten worse. I guess what I'd like to know, I mean, I have no knowledge of this the treatment, uh, the success of treatment, or the side effects, and making a decision about I- intervening. I mean, should in an endemic area, do they do prophylactic shunts? Do they, I mean, it just, it seems like we just, we're saying you could have this and he does have this, and then that's more evidence that he has whatever he has, which we're not certain about. It just, there are just too many it just doesn't, it doesn't, somehow it doesn't sit right. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So a few days into his ICU stay, the team gets a phone call from the microbiology lab. And the CSF PCR is positive for TB. Oh, oh come on, TB. It's always yeah. TB. This is, we should just rename the podcast, Son the TB bitch. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the St. Paul's Morning Report TB <laughs> podcast. <laughs> As I was going through this case, I was thinking the exact same thing. So, so it eventually gets speciated to Mycobacterium bovis, which is a member of the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex group. So albendazole and prazacantal are stopped, and he started on ripe therapy with rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazidamide, and ethambutol, in addition to continuation of his dexamethasone. His Mycobacterium bovis is eventually found to be resistant to pyrazidamide, and he's started on levofloxacin. And furthermore, an aspirate from his endotracheal tube while he was intubated eventually also tests positive for Mycobacterium bovis on TB culture, but with negative AFBs. So this was not found for some time afterwards. Eventually, now uh, looking back over his case, it was a month later, the serology for the tinea solium larva antibody, which is the serologic test for neuroscissorcercosis, is negative. And for the record, this test has a reported sensitivity and specificity of over 98% in patients with two or more cysts, of which this gentleman had innumerable. So he's eventually extubated, transferred back to the ward, and his shunt is removed two weeks later. He gradually improves, but has severe deficits in executive function, memory, mobility, and swallowing. He gets discharged from hospital a month later to an intensive inpatient rehabilitation facility. And unfortunately, when I last checked on his status, he's still in the hospital. He's been now in hospital for almost a year. His MOCA score is 18 out of 30, indicating significant ongoing cognitive dysfunction. He cannot perform any activities of daily living, and a repeat MRI now almost a year later demonstrates ongoing extensive CNS-TB with diffuse leptomeningeal enhancement throughout his brain, as well as throughout his spinal cord, resulting in spinal cord compression that's not amenable to surgical intervention. And as a result, he has bilateral lower extremity weakness and right arm weakness. And he remains on TB treatment for the, throughout this time, as well as a long steroid taper. And so there were a few things I wanted to get uh, the group's thoughts on. This was a situation where a very rare disease, neurocystosarcosis, was mimicking perhaps a slightly less rare disease, which is CNS tuberculoma. 
And as a quick review for the audience, CNS tuberculosis occurs in about only 1% of all patients with active tuberculosis. The most common manifestation is usually CNS meningitis, which is a medical emergency. But less commonly, CNS tuberculosis can present as tuberculomas, in which the TB bacteria exist in fluid-filled sacs that show up on bri-MRI as rim-enhancing lesions. And CNS tuberculoma usually presents with insidious symptoms such as headache. And most forms of CNS tuberculosis are often fatal with the reports in the literature of a mortality up to 80%. And one of the issues that came up afterwards was whether the diagnosis could have been caught earlier. In hindsight, I wanted to get everyone's thoughts on where we're at. Well, I can just say that um, I would have treated him for, if I were treating for anything empirically, I would have treated him for TB only because that was in my, well, that was in my differential and I didn't know any enough about neurosister psychosis to have any thoughts except somebody's opinion about this. So I was, I'm only saying that I probably wouldn't have treated either of them, but I would favor more if I were going to go anyway, I, I would have gone that route. But I, the other thing that, that uh, and this is not about the treatment, but somehow he's immune compromised. And we've had a couple of podcasts where these people have developed an antibody, not these people, people that have disseminated MAC of whatever, have developed and acquired an antibody that gives them the equivalent of immune deficiency. And I'm just blocking on that that pathophysiology and exactly what it is. But we've actually had a couple of cases, and I'm pretty sure we did on, on our podcast, where the, the immune deficiency was an acquired immune deficiency. And maybe uh, you guys can help me, but I just don't remember exactly. I'd, I'd have to look that up. Oh, I, I don't listen to this podcast. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to say it was like an anti, these people had like an anti-TNF antibody or something, and then they developed uh, MAC as a result. Yeah, there was, was some. I think that was Katrina's. an anti-interferon uh, gamma antibody, something like that. It might be something, yeah, but somehow there's an they acquire, it's an acquired immune deficiency with an antibody yeah. that's that leads to the immune deficiency, yeah. and I would wonder if he has that or something like you know some something related. Yeah, that's what I wondered all along. Was like he's not behaving like an immunocompetent thirty-five year old. Uh, right, and I didn't mean to to say that I would treat him for TB. <laughs> I knew uh, how all along. I'm just saying that it it always bothers me when someone, when one person or one group knows this, this follows uh, follows a line of thinking that nobody else is familiar with, and goes on to describe something that none of us have ever seen. It just so they may have been right. It just made me uncomfortable. It makes me. I, I think about that a lot um, when I'm seeing people either for like the question of vasculitis or when I'm on service at the hospital, seeing someone with an atypical form of a rare disease. And and I just like in, in those moments, I kind of pause and reflect on like, I have huge content gaps that would make it very hard for me to know that this is a somewhat rare presentation of a more common disease as opposed to a very rare presentation of this very rare disease. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, all of your specialists when that you consult will always have blinders on necessarily. And, and that's just how it works. But I think like the bridge between those things becomes the, the hospitalist and general internist. I think in this case where no one else had any other thoughts or, or specific content knowledge or around the infection, yeah, like that makes it complicated and it puts a lot of the uh, 
responsibility on the consultant to decide when and how to pull the trigger. And I think if I was the the internist, I'd be like, if you think it's that, if you think it's neurocystosarcosis and not the thing I know slightly more about, TB, okay, like, well, you you presumably have your reasons for that. And I think, unfortunately, like there are, there's just a time, there's a time limit. You can't fuss around until you get all the results back, even though as Taylor, you mentioned, like the results did come back and they did prove what it was like that, that the diagnosis is convincing, but there was no way to wait for that. And I think that that's, that's really sad. That's really but unfortunate. revisiting this for the, the reasons we talked about, if we had done a meningeal biopsy, we would have had the diagnosis. And the concept that you brought up with, there's not enough disease, there's too much disease. I don't know what that means. I mean, is there not an urgency on our colleagues' part to help make this diagnosis? And what's the problem? What is the problem with doing uh, a meningeal biopsy? Like, I can't see where the problem is. Maybe you folks can, but I can't see it. I think my content knowledge there is also so poor that like, at like I, you know, I was being facetious earlier when like, oh, I can't get these guys to do a biopsy. It's the brain. Like it's obviously very complicated or maybe it like it was so swollen that it was abutting the cord. Like I, I really don't know any of the ins and outs of spine or brain surgery to say like to, to boss around a neurosurgeon and say like, well, I, I know you're uncomfortable, but do it anyways. Um, I think that that for me is just a, such a content gap. I, I wouldn't know. I'd have to talk to them in person, though. I think that's a staff to staff discussion. Well, I, I don't disagree. I, I'm, but I, and I wasn't being uh, pejorative. I actually don't know. Like, what is it they're concerned about? Are they concerned about coning? Mm-hmm. Are they concerned? I mean, I'm not sure. Are they concerned it's not going to heal? I, I actually just don't know what their con- what their issue is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in, in this particular case. I'm I'm not sure. It, it kind of came back as a no. We, we don't think this is a safe intervention, but as to the details of their rationale, I'm not sure. But in hindsight, one of the things we had wondered is whether you could treat both organisms empirically. And actually, in because as you guys have highlighted in uh, additional podcasts in, in many other areas of the world, there is a very frequent empiric treatment of TB, whereas certainly in my training here in Vancouver, that I have, I personally have never seen that that started, and so it seems a, such a foreign concept to me, and certainly to the treating team I was involved in. But in looking through the literature, there actually have been a few studies, uh, one in particular done a few years ago, in which patients who were this is a slightly situ- different situation, but in patients who were diagnosed with pulmonary TB and found to be co-infected with a parasite, and there were a number of them, were simultaneously treated with albendazole and the standard TB treatment. So certainly there doesn't seem to be any repercussions in terms of drug-drug interactions or adverse events related to treatment of the organisms. And so I, I couldn't find any guidelines suggesting empiric treatment for both, but in these situations where both diagnoses of so CNS tuberculoma and neurocystosarcosis are so challenging, whether that could have potentially saved this gentleman some morbidity. I want to get back to Steph's initial concept of brown semen. Was his urinary tract cultured for TB? And was it possible that he had, that the initial diagnosis could have been made with looking at that semen? I'm actually, I'm not sure. It never, it was something that came up on his kind of initial history and then was 
never really a major a main issue. Didn't certainly didn't recur while he was in hospital, and nothing came on further imaging of his abdomen or his kidneys. And I don't think it ever. I think it kind of fell off. And I, to be honest, in looking through his chart and for this case, I I couldn't find any further evidence that that had ever recurred. It was a brown, so I don't know whether it was a brown herring. <laughs> But but it would be interesting, and you may have uh, you may have said this, but was it when when he was CT'd, was his prostate CT'd as well? It would have been in the abdo pelvis CT, and it was you know reportedly un- unremarkable. It certainly wasn't highlighted. Yeah, it's uh, anyhow. It's just it's in. I mean, the history makes everything, and and uh, would have been really not fun, but it would have been really supportive if if that history in this matched the, if we could have made the diagnosis historically and with that simple test rather than waiting for him to go through all of this other stuff. I'm just going to make my little closing comments. So so that immune deficiency that led to those MAC infections, I think that was an, an autoantibody against interferon gamma. And okay. it, this reminds me that like, you know, in this guy's case, he's had a terrible outcome and, and I don't know that it really merits it. But in, in a patient that you that has a weird infection that you sort of begin to question their immunocompetence, I do think it really is worthwhile referring them to an immunologist when they've recovered. Um, I think that's just a, a thing that we probably don't do enough. And the other thing that that I, you know, we, we've recently become aware of a, a sort of more international reach in this podcast. And I'd love to hear from people who are are from places where TB is more common about what what their thoughts are. Like, would th- would this have been sort of missed where you're from? I I wonder. You know, I, I think we we probably don't have as much experience as we as we should or we could with TB. And and as I've said before, I, I think in other parts of the world, this guy easily would have just been treated empirically for tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Good yeah, point. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good thought i wonder if there's someone listening like just like the whole time being like it's not neuro sister so yeah. like it's tb someone it's TB, out there TB. is screaming into their listening device saying, into the this void is obviously <laughs> tuberculosis you idiots and, and yeah, yeah i mean i i, I think that's likely actually taylor any uh any closing thoughts from your side so in i mean certainly this this gentleman had a very unfortunate outcome and has definitely been left with some severe ongoing deficits. And in going through his case in retrospect in more detail, I was trying to figure out, you know, at what point we could have done something differently that would have potentially improved his outcome. And I think at the end of the day, I I would probably have done the exact same thing in the situation where we're faced with potential or choosing between two diagnoses that are both uncommon and are certainly you know outside my personal scope of knowledge where you know we're as you've all highlighted we're we're reliant on our on a on a team of colleagues and to make the best decision at that time and i think in retrospect it you know perhaps wasn't the best decision but i don't think i would do anything differently faced with this situation again so it's perhaps a slightly unsatisfying but as as much as i could try and re rework the case, I, I don't think I would have done anything differently. You know, Taylor, can I just say, I think you're incorrect. I think you would do something differently and not that you would be right in doing something differently, but your experience in this case would would make you more uncomfortable than you were at the time when you knew nothing about this case. And I think all of us would feel the same. I mean, given the same presentation or again, you probably, 
if you had to live through it again, probably wouldn't have done everything the same way. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for uh, a really interesting case. That was a great one. Um, I'm sorry to, yeah, absolutely. I think we're all sorry to hear about the the poor outcome there, but I think there's a lot for us to take away um, to any future case that we see like that. Um, so lots lots to think about there. Thanks so Thanks, much. Taylor. And uh, to, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, catch us in a couple weeks for uh, another episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Taylor. Bye, everyone. Bye.